This is the VIP Podcast, Virginia in Politics. Let's listen to host Chris Saxman explore the personalities and policies that connect the Commonwealth. The VIP Podcast is brought to you by the VCTA, Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the VCTA and Virginia Free or our sponsors. Hi, this is Chris Saxon on the VIP podcast brought to you by VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free, of which I am the executive director. Joining us today is Delegate Amanda Batten. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Chris. Well, it's great to have you on here. Caucus chair of the Republicans in the House, yes? Yes, I am. Wow. And uh, this is its probably one of the more, when I, when I look at your bio, it's one of the ones that I, that I like the most because you, you didn't, you came up through the system, not the normal way. You, you, you were a, you were a, um, well, a, a delegates and senators aide, and, you know, and then you run, and, that, and that's happened before, but then the rise into the ranks of leadership, it's pretty extraordinary. Tell me about why you got into politics, served in that capacity as a legislative assistant, and then decided to run yourself. Sure. So um, I don't come from a political background. I, I grew up in, in Maryland, though. And so when you turn on your, your news in the evening, all the news that you watch as a kid is basically politics because it all comes out of the D.C. area. So sort of grew up with an awareness of politics and, and, and watching it, but wasn't actively involved. Parents weren't engaged or anything like that um, and ended up you know, moving to Virginia. My ex-husband was in the military, and so he was, he was stationed here, and that's what brought me here. And it was just something I'd kind of followed all along in my in my life, just uh, you know keeping up with the current state of affairs. Always, you know, sort of fancied myself more fiscally conservative, uh, believed in limited government. And so when I had an opportunity to volunteer with my local Republican committee, I uh, I signed up. So anyone who's been involved in grassroots politics knows that you know if you show up at a local Republican Party meeting and say hey I'm here and I'm happy to volunteer they're going to take you up on that offer and that was that was how I first became involved was just I moved here I had no idea what a precinct was they were talking about you know this political convention I thought it was like a trade show that they were trying to have I had I was completely <laughs> green when I moved here um, but that was in 2008 so I, I started as a you know just a local volunteer in 2008 uh, my son was young at the time, so when he went to school and I was looking to return to the workforce, I happened to get a job offer in Senator Tommy Norman's office at the time to be one of his legislative aides, um, you know, part-time, and that was how I started in that role. Wow, it's it, and I guess everyone has to start somewhere in whatever uh, business, industry, profession that you're in, and ours took a similar uh, track. I was, I was teaching, and I won't belabor you in my story too much, but just to relate with you on that. I was teaching and about the, the nomination process to, to my class. And they were like, well, what role do you play, Mr. Sachs? And I'm like, well, I mean, I vote. And they're like, well, shouldn't you do more? And I was like, oh boy, here we go. And this was, uh, this was 1992. Um, and that was the first, that was the year of Clinton uh, coming into, you know, the Clinton Perot Bush uh, election. And then Bob Goodlatte, I started working on his campaigns by, uh, by showing up because my students sort of goaded me into doing it. So um, and then eight years later, I'm um, running for the House of Delegates. And eight years after that, 2008, that was uh, co-chair of a national campaign in Virginia. So I guess the message to anyone listening is if you really want to get involved, you can really get involved. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you, what, uh, let's t since you're from Maryland, whereabouts in Maryland? And let's talk about, you know, on a more personal level there. What are your favorite books? 
Um, so I, I did grow up largely in Maryland. I was actually born in DC. My parents lived in Crofton when I was little. Okay. Um, and then we moved to Pennsylvania for a number of years and then back to Maryland where I lived in Frederick. So I was more on the, the Western side of, of, um, of Maryland. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's one of my favorite towns. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, there was really nothing there back in the 90s. They called it Fredneck because it was oh, rural yeah. and, and all that. Now when I go back, I'm shocked by the amount of development that's there. But in any case, it's a beautiful uh, area. One of my dearest uh, friends in the world, uh, the O'Connells, the family of the O'Connells, they uh, lived over near Fort Detrick. Okay. That was, well, actually one of my very first jobs was at Fort Detrick. So growing up in, you know, in the Frederick area, they were always looking for these summer like GS1 positions to fill where you do mindless data entry for, you know, 40 mm -hmm. hours a week. And uh, that was, that was one of my very first, very first jobs when I was 16 was working at Fort Detrick. So <laughs> if you remember over off 7th Street, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. for, I'm sorry for the audience as we do this, but this is one of the great things about life and politics. There was a milk plant over there. Yep. I lived across the street. Oh, okay. Uh, for, uh, for summer, as I moved down from New York City, lived with my dear friends on, um, on 7th Street. We'd walk over to uh, Market Street, the downtown mm -hmm. track there. Uh, Bushwallers in particular was, our, uh, was, our, was one of our favorites. And Griff's, those are the big ones. Anyway, uh, so talk about what are your favorite books? Um, uh, that's a funny question. So I, I don't read a lot of fiction. I tend to read more nonfiction. I'm reading Apocalypse Never right now, which talks about environmental alarmism. And I, I tend to follow books like that. The weirdest thing is my favorite books are still children's books because they are the books that shaped me, I think, most as a kid, the things that drew me to love reading, to love learning, to have sort of that, um, I don't know, I, I guess the realization that, you know, you can escape in a book. So I, I still look back at some children's books like James and the Giant Peach and things like that as some of the most, my, my favorite books because they just bring back warm memories. So I read way more boring books now than I did when I was a kid, so... But that's a very honest and wonderful answer. So there's, there's no right one here. Um, uh, favorite TV shows? Uh, I don't watch a lot of TV. I've got to tell you that. So one of my favorite ones is Psych. I don't know if anyone ever remembers Psych from a number. I was like probably 10, yeah. 15 years ago now. Yeah. yeah. So my son is 20. He's in college. And he and I find that show just ridiculously funny because it's inappropriate and in all the you know politically incorrect ways that were funny at the time, but are even funnier now in the world in which we live. So we love Psych. Yeah, isn't it funny when you can watch uh, shows with your kids and they're adults and you kind of both get it and you kind of have that relationship around it? Yeah, yeah. My, my wife still brings up, you let the kids watch Austin Powers. I'm like, oh, the kids have a sense of humor, <laughs> so let it go, you know? But I mean, you know, we're normal in our house too. We still watch Yellowstone and 18 okay. those, those kinds of things. So those are some of the things that we watch that are that are on that right now. But, um, you know, if we just want to like chill back and relax and have a laugh, then we'll watch some of the older stuff. Okay, favorite movies then? Oh man, I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you what some of my favorite movies are. You, you, if you watch <laughs> these, if you watch these podcasts of your colleagues, you will learn the diversity of their uh, their 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 cultural influence. It's really astounding. One of the reasons why, why I asked you, frankly, Delegate Batten, is to get not just to know uh, the politicians and our leaders better, but where they get their information, how they process, and what's important to them. Well, I like funny movies. So if I'm going to sit down and watch something on television or a movie, then I kind of want to you know, get away from it all. So my family makes great fun of me. But one of my favorite movies is The Jerk by Steve Martin, which is an old and ridiculous movie. I know. Classic. <laughs> classic. It's, it's classic. So and I'll, tell, and I'll tell you a connection on that one. Uh, Winsome Sears and I, when she was uh, Lieutenant Governor-elect, we were having uh, breakfast at the uh, Senate Finance Retreat in Roanoke at the Hotel Roanoke. And we had received, she had received an, um, 
uh, an inquiry about writing a book. And I said, Winston, would you like to write a book? And she goes, well, my life isn't really that interesting. And I looked very quizzical at her. I'm like, uh, no, it's really interesting. And her daughter was there, Janelle. And I, I looked at her and she was just shaking her head. I said, Winston, you have an extraordinary story. <laughs> Do you know what she dropped on me? She goes, what? I was born a poor black child? <laughs> which, which is the, which is the intro. Line. It's a great line from the movie, The Jerk, isn't it? It, <laughs> it is. is. It is. So, but that's the, so now you can go to Winsome and say, hey, <laughs> I like that movie too. Uh, Maven Johnson, one of the great characters of all time. Okay. Um, favorite sports teams. You're from Maryland. Don't break my heart. You know what? I don't follow sports. I'm not going to lie to you. Never have. Never have. Never have. Never played them? My parents didn't really watch sports. My dad wasn't into it. Really? Um, Interesting. Yeah. No. Again, it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing, right? And that's when we get to know people um, is, is sometimes is connecting through these cultural influences. And sports is obviously a big part of people's lives uh, these days, as a, especially during COVID, where we couldn't get out and go do anything, just watch sports a lot. What works okay. out? I mean, we don't have any professional teams in Virginia. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> Well, that's a segue into the stadium, Bill. Where are you on the uh, Commander Stadium Authority thing? Yeah, I mean, I I understand sort of all the machinations behind it, and uh, you know what some of the pros and cons are. I, I didn't I didn't support it, and a lot of my colleagues and I had reservations there just about you know putting money into you know bringing a sports team here who actually benefits from that, and um, yeah, not not really a fan of that. So I don't think that's any big secret amongst my my colleagues. But why, why in particular, what was your reservation there or uh, disagreement? Yeah, you know, I, I just don't like the idea of it, investing a lot of government dollars to bring a sports team here. I know that there's a, you know, sort of a potential return on investment, but it feels very much like we're, you know, picking winners and losers there in an industry that I just don't see necessarily a, a huge benefit to the folks who, who live in that area. Um, and it's just not something that I think we should be using government dollars for. A very, a very sound uh, line of thinking. I don't think anyone can find fault with that, um, you know, especially when you're talking uh, someone who's worth upwards of four or five billion dollars himself. Um, you know, that's that, that, I know that's rubbing people the wrong way. Let's uh, let's dive into some other issues in session. Uh, where are we in the budget? You're the caucus chair. You'll be having a caucus meeting hopefully next week uh, to go over the budget. Are we with Washington Post story today? Uh, was describing a, a closer deal, closer to the deal being done. What, what, what are you hearing and what can you tell us? I do not have any intel on the budget. I will say that uh, everything that you have read about Chairman Knight keeping his you know, cards close is true. He has not been you know, out and about sharing all the, all the details of the negotiation. So I, you know, I'm fully confident, obviously, that we're going to have a budget completed by the end of the fiscal year. Don't think there's going to be any um, problems there. But as, as far as what the details look like, you know, I'm not, I'm really not privy to those yet. So we, we still are, are kind of in a, a wait and see posture. Are you, uh, is the caucus okay with that? Uh, having Barry, uh, Delegate Barry Knight, uh, my former seatmate, uh, handle it and come uh, up with a deal for the house. I mean, that's a lot of power in one man's important person's hand. And look, I trust Barry, he's a good man, but just from a, from a political uh, reality inside the caucus, does, is there any pushback on that? Um, I mean, that's a good question. I can't speak on behalf of all of my caucus members and they don't every, you know, they don't all tell me exactly what they're thinking. I mean, I think generally speaking, folks, you know, trust Barry and I think he's doing a good job. Understand that, you know, it's um, a delicate negotiation, obviously, between the Democrat controlled Senate and the Republican controlled House of Delegates. 
Um, the reality is, is once that budget, you know, final budget product comes out, each and every one of us has a responsibility to look through it ourselves and to figure out what's in there and make sure that we understand it. And if there's something we don't like or something that gives us concern, it's incumbent upon us as individual legislators to, you know, ask Barry those questions or, or get the answers to, you know, to whatever concerns that we have. So, um, you know, right now, I think obviously the biggest frustration that we have, and you're familiar with this, is just the, you know, kind of have it hanging over your head. You know, we've got, you can't really go anywhere because we have to be on a 48 hour recall. So no one could really make any plans professionally or personally during this interim period. Um, but that's, you know, that's just the way it is. I mean, there's nothing really unique about this year compared to other years where we've had these budget standoffs. So, um, you know, it's just it's sort of the way it is in Richmond sometimes. Well, let's, um, yeah, let's, I'll come up, I'll discuss that frustration in a second here, but let's, let's, let's push back into that reality of the, you know, giving it uh, the time left because we're hearing June 1 to June 3rd and then the governor is going to have to come up with his amendments and right. not be voted on. And so you're looking at almost the end of June, right up to the, they're running at this right up to the end. Sure. Sure. That's, um, and I, I mean, I can't speak on behalf of the Senate, but I would absolutely say that in the house, we would have preferred to have this done, you know, in, in March, we were, we were not looking to, to drag it out. It is what it is right now. There's a lot of other factors. Um, you know, the governor obviously very much, very much wants to have a budget done, but, you know, the political back and forth has been substantial this year. And, I, you know, I, I get the politics behind it. I understand, you know, where the Senate Democrats don't want to give the governor, you know, a win. And if the, but, you know, if the governor views having a budget finalized as a, as a win, then they're probably going to drag that out as long as possible. So I think that's a lot of where we are right now just has to do with the sort of um, the Senate Democrats, you know, not wanting to, to give the governor any sort of, um, you know, positive headline right now. I, I understand that. Um, Virginia Free has spoken out uh, strongly in the past about the need for the General Assembly and the executive branch to work together to finish their product, work product on time. Um, uh, that had been well received, uh, especially under uh, the chair chairman, Chris Jones, and not, you know, saying, good Chris, bad Barry, that's not, that's not the case here at all. There, there's the obvious political reality right now with uh, a new governor who's risen to the national profile that he has. You have a Senate Democratic uh, caucus that is not aligned philosophically with the budget, but we do have to get back to getting things done on time. Would you not agree with that? So, uh, no, I absolutely I absolutely agree with it. I mean, it's very frustrating, as, as everyone's well aware, for our local governments who are trying to come up with their budgets when, you know, the state has not finished theirs. Um, you know, it, it, it was telling this year. I mean, it was it was publicly reported that, you know, when the, the governor came down with a lot of his vetoes and amendments that the Senate Democrats response was basically, you know, this is going to make it even harder for us to get the budget done. You know, okay, I get the politics behind that, but the two actually aren't related. We still need to have a budget done. You can't use, you know, the governor's political actions or legislative actions as an excuse to not do a budget because it, it really makes it very difficult for our localities to be fiscally responsible going forward. And it's, it's just frustrating. Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. I, I guess what the business community uh, is concerned about is um, what it says about Virginia government not being able to get its work done on time and the delay not knowing, um, and this is a significant budget change this year without the amount of money. And in previous budget standoffs, it has been due to a lack of money. Now we have a, a largesse that is historic 
And I think everyone understands the need to balance out, um, you know, um, one-time money versus programmatic changes that cost in the out years. And we're going to have, right. as, a, as we've seen, uh, reports of, you know, uh, verifying the eligibility of all these new Medicaid recipients. That's going to be a, a budget concern going forward as it bumps up against K through 12 as, as well. Um, have there been discussions inside the caucus along these long-term uh, problems? No, I mean, frankly, as a caucus, we haven't really met except for during the reconvened session where we focused exclusively on the governor's vetoes and amendments. So when we concluded the legislative session, you know, we were very much focused on the House budget, um, some of the priorities that were in there. Obviously, we have discussion about what's some give and take maybe that we could have between the House and the Senate budget. But, you know, collectively as a caucus, we uh, we, we do trust our budget negotiators to to have those conversations and then um, take the, the final product that they develop and, and have conversation about that. So uh, your, your, your point is well taken, though. I mean, the, the biggest issue that we have this year is very much a philosophical issue between the House and the Senate. Um, you know, the House is looking at just this massive amount of extra money, if you will, that's sitting out there and saying, OK, how do we return this to taxpayers? Um, how do we make sure that we're not setting up programs that we're going to have to fund in perpetuity? And then on the Senate side, you know, they have a different political philosophy and they're looking at, you know, spending this money, uh, bolstering existing programs, maybe setting up some new ones as well. So um, to, to your point, it's very much a philosophical difference this year as to why the budget is, is kind of been in gridlock. And it's different to have, you know, sort of the surplus funds be the thing that we're arguing over versus shortfalls, which is typically where we are. And we're gonna be there going forward too. I mean, I think that's the other thing as well is we can't look at this year as some sort of, uh, this year is an aberration. You know, we're, we're obviously our economy is headed in a different direction. We, um, we need to be very, very careful what things look like going forward as well. So uh, I know as, you know, a fiscal conservative, that's, that's one of my big concerns is, you know, if we set up expectations for high funding based on this year's revenues and some of the federal dollars and so forth that we have coming in, that's going to be really hard for us to um, uphold those commitments going forward when things take a downturn, because they always do. Right. It, it's, uh, there's a great video out there on um, either one of the social media sites, Instagram or Facebook, whatever, with, with Tom Hanks and several uh, very famous actors around the table. And it's, uh, he, he talks about this notion of this too shall pass. When the good times are good, don't worry, this too shall pass. When the bad times are bad, don't worry, this too shall pass. You know, it, these things ebb and flow, and it's the balance that, you know, I think that was one of the hallmarks of Virginia government. It has been making, uh, making certain things a priority and, uh, you know, balancing a budget, obviously, fiscal conservatism, investing in our core services. Uh, I, I think we have done over the course of the last 25 years, 30 years, a, a very good job. In, in building a, a solid commonwealth. I, I think everyone pretty much agrees with that. In the, in the philosophical lane of fiscal conservatism you brought up, who, who um, politically did you turn to or, or were inspired by as a politician or political thought leader uh, to, to sort of gather your thoughts? That's a good question. I, I don't, I honestly, there's not really a single person that I, I look at as someone who, um, is inspirational to me. I tend to just do a lot of reading and research on my own and I appreciate the input of everyone, but there's, there's really not, there's not one person or, or one individual that I've, that I've ever looked at. I've been fortunate, I think, to uh, work for legislators. I worked for Delegate Brenda Pogge, who was my predecessor in the House of Delegates. I worked for Senator Tommy Norman. Um, certainly took a lot away from them as far as just the, you know, sort of the, the practicality of, of dealing in a political world. 
Um, I'm not a huge ideologue. You're probably never going to hear me getting up on the House floor and quoting from um, other le other legislators, other politicians, other economists, anything like that. Um, I'm I'm pretty pragmatic in that regard. So um, there's there's really not any there's no one person that I would pinpoint. I love that answer, and because and because it's unique uh, and honest and authentic. That's one of the things I, I think is rare in political circles these days. And hopefully, hopefully it's becoming uh, more uh, popular or more accepted to for people to do their own thing and just express themselves individually like that. Because I think most people get up in, from various circles lately, whether they're FDR Democrat or LBJ Democrat or a Reagan Republican or whatever, and they also have that sort of- um, Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most common that you're a Reagan Republican, but I mean, I was like an infant when Reagan was president. So I can't identify with that. I'm sure he was, a, I know he was a great president. I, you know, I, I, I get it. But, you know, personally, it wasn't my experience to live through his presidency. And since then, I've had, you know, Bill no, Clinton. I, I, president. I, yeah, yeah it's, so. it's, not to, it's not to pinpoint you or anything like that, but so many people have used certain politicians in the past as an identifying um, reality. Uh, you know, they'll say they're a fiscal conservative like you have as, as a way to identify oneself. But and I don't know if that's changing in our, in our politics because I don't think people look up and go, I'm, a, I'm Obama Democrat or I'm a Bush, Demo or Bush Republican. Right. Yeah, they're just not, they're just not, they're not a Clinton Democrat anymore. Uh, they're, they're really not um, aligning themselves with any particular person. Is, is that right. fair? I mean, is that, that's just an observation. I think that's fair. And I, I think honestly, things are changing and have changed so much and so quickly just with the way that social media works that, you know, if you identify yourself too closely with, you know, anyone in the, even the recent political past, you know, you risk associating yourself with someone who's out of favor the next week. Um, so I think that there's some reticence there, you know, where people might say, oh, I'm an Obama Democrat. And then, you know, you, someone jumps out and says, well, did you know that Obama supported this, this and this? And he's a terrible person. And all of a sudden, you know, you associated yourself with someone who maybe you thought was respectable or that you liked in the moment. And, you know, the, the tide has turned and the public sentiment du jour is against that person. And so, you know, it, it makes it sort of sort of hard, I think, to fully align yourself with someone these days, uh, which I honestly, I think is unfortunate because I think that, uh, you know, if you look back through, through history, you see great thought leaders um, who had good ideas, good policies that they put out there, uh, maybe were even genius in their own way, but they were probably deeply flawed in other areas of their lives. And they had some not so, not so great ideology. Right. And you need to be able, or we need to be able, I think, as a society to say, hey, you know, I, I really like where they stood on this one issue. Realize they were way off base over here, but I'm not going right. to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But unfortunately, that's, that's really doesn't seem to be where we are in society and certainly not where we are um, politically these days. Yeah, it's, and the one that comes to mind when you mentioned that was is Winston Churchill. Not just because my daughter's dog who's staying with us is named Winston, but um, just I, I watch a lot of the, the, the specials on uh, Netflix and Darkest Hour is one of my favorite movies. And people always will you'll say something about Churchill about oh what about the Gallipoli, the Gallipoli campaign or what about India? I'm like what about Ireland? I'm like what about Nazi Germany in in right. <laughs> Isn't there like a priority here? And uh, there's always this, uh, to your point, I think it's a very valid one and a very good one, is that when you attach yourself to someone, it's like you, you buy the entire, the, their entire reality. They're like, well, that's not, that's, that's not fair at all. But, no. in, but in that vein, Delegate Batten, is it liberating to not have those identifiers out there, to not have to go, I'm a... Lockean conservative, or I'm a Goldwater conservative, or you know. I, I mean, 
I don't know that I would say it's it's liberating. It's not something that I that I dwell on. I, I think that as a legislator or anyone who's involved in policy, you need to look at all the different thought leaders who are out there right. and sort of, you know, pick and choose and look through today's lens of where we are right now as a society and um, culture and figure out, you know, what policies might work. I mean, it's, you know, we, we talk about looking, looking at history and using it as a template going forward, but it's certainly not lost on me that, you know, all times are unprecedented. And there's not a one size fits all model where I can look back and say, well, you know what, this worked really well and fill in the blank year and fill in the blank situation because we're not in the same place right now. Um, you have to think innovatively, creatively. And I love uh, that observation. I love that observation about uh, everything's unprecedented. All time mm -hmm. is unprecedented. Yeah. So that's, that, that one kind of knocked me back on my heels. That's, that's, that's outstanding. Um, that, that was that was a that was a moment for me now, because people was this is unprecedented. Everything's unprecedented, isn't it? Um, right. That's 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 awesome. What are you working on, Delegate Batten, these days? As caucus chair, I mean, you've got a re-election coming up, I assume, next year. Next year, it looks like yes. That was our kind of good news that popped out over the weekend. Was that it was reported that we're probably House members are probably not going to have to run this year. So that's good. Um, you know, I have some some legislation last year that I carried over, had passed by that I want to do some more work on some education related things. Um, I it's I'm always fascinated by the bills that my colleagues and I carry and why people carry the legislation that they carry. And there's there's no right or wrong to this. It's just interesting. Right. So I have some colleagues who are very knowledgeable in a certain area of expertise, maybe because they're an attorney and that's where they practice or that's what their professional background is. And they tend to carry legislation in that specific area. Um, which I think is great. I don't, I don't approach it like that because I came from a legislative aid background and very much engaged in my community. I'm always looking for the people who live in my area to, you know, to collaborate with them to come up with some best practices based on just what average people are sort of looking for to help in their daily lives. And um, maybe you have a problem or you recognize that there's a problem with um, what's going on in Virginia and you have a you know, potential solution to it in your own mind and as a legislator, I think it's really cool that I can listen to you explain what you perceive as a problem and then come up with a legislative solution that benefits not only you as my constituent, but also folks across the Commonwealth. And so um, had a number of sort of local issues that popped up this year. Um, don't want to get into the weeds on all of them yet, but certainly, you know, it's kind of nice when you're not running because it means you can start working on your legislation and getting the stakeholders together earlier in the earlier in the year rather than waiting until after November. So that's nice. Well, let's talk about the the, new, the district. Uh, how much did it change? What's it looking like for you? Um, so my district, you know, like everyone else has changed a good bit. Currently, I represent portions of James City and York counties. Uh, my district is like maybe 55, 45, Republican to Democrat. I do lose my, uh, probably my most conservative, largest red precincts. Um, and then I actually pick up the city of Williamsburg, which is the College of William and Mary. And then I pick up a sizable um, swath of New Kent County, which is a rural area. So I sort of go from representing, I would say, kind of the greater historic triangle area in Williamsburg to um, a, still a good portion of the historic triangle, but then New Kent, which is traditionally associated more with the Richmond region. So straddling a little bit more um, of Hampton Roads and the Capital District, which is different for me. Although I live actually geographically now right in the center of my district. So I live in Tuano, um, oh. which is on the edge of James City County. And then, so I, I have all that adjacent area of New Kent now. So geographically, it's very convenient. 
Um, regionally, it's a little bit more challenging to have that overlap between um, okay. you know, Richmond and Hampton Roads. So you're going to be uh, focused on the, the, the road, the 64 gap, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. You know, that's there's there's some budget negotiations going on there, too. So fingers crossed. Yeah. Little insight here. A little insight. Well, you know, the House and the Senate each had money um, that they allocated in their budgets for that. I think the House had much less than the Senate, but, you know, we're still in the negotiation right now. So you're you're looking forward to supporting the Senate position on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny. I mean, I live off of the exit where the widening has not yet happened. And it's always a source of contention here because, you know, if you go back years ago uh, when the decision was made to have the extra sales tax to fund the widening of I-64, where I live in James City County, we've been paying that extra sales tax all these years, but they haven't actually widened I-64 where we live. So there's a little bit of animosity that it's nice that we've been paying this great sales tax for all these years to widen I-64 for everyone else, not ourselves. <laughs> but, but it's time. What you're saying is time, and you're gonna you're gonna fight for that, obviously. I'm, and I'm and I've, I'm glad you said Toano because I was always wondering what the pronunciation was of that one. Yeah, Toano's. Toano. Toano. Because I was told anyway. Okay, um, so the new district, what does it look like uh, politically? I shifted, obviously, west mm-hmm. um, a little bit there into the Richmond area. What's it? You see, you were at 5545. Uh, it's more evenly divided now, I would say. It's really hard. It's really hard to tell, though, because all the early voting, the way that the early voting broke out during the past couple of years, they didn't break it down by precinct. And so you don't necessarily know where some of those votes are geographically in your district. You just know that people voted, you know, early, basically. So it's definitely more of a purple district than it is right now. Um, It kind of depends, you know, what what numbers you you look at. But it's definitely a winnable district for me. It's just um, a, a little bit a little bit more purple. Okay, and uh, you were elected in what year? Seventh? 19. 19. And you were already caucus chair? Mm-hmm. That's extraordinary. Did you miss a meeting? Is that, let's just give it to Amanda. <laughs> no, although a couple of people have asked me that. <laughs> no. No, I mean, honestly, I, I, I feel um, really humbled that my colleagues, you know, supported yeah. me in that initiative, but uh, you know, it's, as I mentioned earlier, I, I kind of came up through the ranks as a legislative aide. So when I worked over on the Senate side, I worked for Senator Normant. Um, he was the minority leader and then the majority leader while I worked for him. And so I actually also worked for the Senate Republican Caucus. So I had experience working, um, you know, with their caucus, which is very different from the House. I'm not, you know, making an apples to apples comparison, but, you know, sort of understanding what the role of the caucus is. And then um, obviously was a legislative aide for my predecessor for, you know, six years um, I've been working in Richmond for over a decade, and um, you know, I'm I'm happy to serve as caucus chair. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's an extraordinary rise as quickly to become caucus chair so quickly. Uh, congratulations! Um, that's a that's a feather in the cap, even for the historic triangle. That's pretty good, right? Feather in the cap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No one. Go James City County. No, I thought it was a good one. I thought it was a good line. Feather in the cap. For like Feather a in the cap. No, tricorn. You got to have like a tricorn. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's a, <laughs> a little. That was in style in the uh, early early uh, tens, I think. The early. Uh, <laughs> when the was rolling. Uh, what what's your major initiative you can be you can be tackling uh, in the next coming upcoming session there, Delegate Batten? What's top, um, top of mind. Personally, or you mean as a as a. Caucus, or I, I honestly, we're still going to be going after it. Because you're chairman, you're obviously going to be a part of the leadership there and the overall right. agenda, but uh, what's the top? 
I think education issues still. Um, I mean, this is something that still is at the forefront of Virginians' minds. When we were running last year, the thing that we heard more than anything else was con concern from parents, educators, everyone about um, learning loss for students, um, a realization that there's not a one-size-fits-all for kids in school, and we need to do a better job of making sure that kids are recognized for the individual needs and merits that they have, and they're receiving um, the resources and opportunities that they deserve. So, you know, this is one of those issues that really frustrates me that it's become so incredibly polarizing and politicized because I don't view it that way at all. I think every single student deserves to be in a school system where they have the resources that will allow them to succeed. And, you know, if school choice is a part of that, then it should be part of that. Um, I think that, you know, if you're a parent and you recognize that your kid is not receiving the um, you know, the education maybe that works best for them, that you should have the freedom to look around for other opportunities for your child. Because that's what every parent wants. As a parent, you want your kid to, to be successful. You recognize that your kid is an individual and that there might not be a one-size-fits-all, um, you know, program for them. And I just, I really do wish that that was something that we could have greater collaboration on because I don't, I don't see it as a partisan issue. We should all be able to agree that this is a something that's a priority. I think it goes to some of the inequality in our society is that the wealthy can pick up and move to better public school districts. That's yeah. the choice. Or put their kids in private school or pay for it. Yeah, that's, that's their school choice. That is a school choice program in the market. Yeah. Those who can't, who are, the, who are most vulnerable of being left behind in the first place and uh, less likely to get into the top tier colleges and universities um, so I, I think, you know, th that was my issue when I was in the house for, yeah. And I think the pandemic really laid it bare at the very beginning when schools were shutting down. I remember, you know, having conversations with educators and like the kids who are going to suffer are going to be the kids who are already falling behind the kids who maybe English is a second language in their home and they don't have someone to help them with their homework, or they live in a rural area and they don't have reliable internet access or, you know, their parents are, you know, their parents are both working. There's no one at home with them. I mean, it goes on and on and on, but those are the kids who are already struggling in school. Those are the kids who are struggling even more. And when you look at the learning loss numbers at the end of, you know, shutdowns and everything, you can see that that's exactly what happened. The kids who are already sort of on that edge there either fell completely behind or, or left the system entirely. We don't even know where some of these children are. And that that's absolutely devastating to me that as a, um, you know, an affluent society, as, uh, you know, as, as a first world country, as we try to brand ourselves, that we can't even give our kids a basic fundamental education and make sure that they have the skills to do reading and, and math and, and get ahead in life. It's just wrong. Well, one of the great um, uh, innovations or innovator uh, strategies uh, has to take place in education, in, in, in my estimation. And again, I put the school tax credit bill in 2003 and carried it through 2009. Um, and then it passed when, uh, when I left and Jimmy Massey took it and Bob McDonald signed it. But competition does a lot for just about every industry. And we seem to think that uh, in, a, in, a, in a failing way, I believe, that two, three, four, five percent more money is going to get you 20, 50 percent better. It just, it just doesn't equate. There's no, there's no lever in the game to accelerate the performance of underperforming schools to say, well, we'll give you a couple, you know, a couple percent more this year, but you know, you're doing an okay job. 
And then, you know, kids get left behind year after year after year. After a while, uh, the model just isn't working. Right. It's right. just not there. And, you know, we saw, you know, last week the governor came out with sort of this analysis of, you know, where Virginia students are relative to a national scale. And I think it was concerning for a lot of people who, you know, we look at our SOLs here in the Commonwealth and say, oh, the students, you know, pass rate's pretty good, but okay, great students are passing our, our SOLs here in Virginia. But when you compare what their performance is to students in other states throughout the country, we're really not doing all that well. Um, and I, you know, again, I don't think this is a partisan issue. It's very frustrating to me when I see people getting up there and, you know, making it sound like this is something that, you know, we need to argue about. No, I mean, the number, the metrics are the metrics. And if we're not doing that well, take it as it is and figure out what we can do to, to make things better going forward. Um, I, I worry that there has been, you know, pressure for a variety of different reasons on educators and on schools to, you know, push kids through the system. So it doesn't look like there's a high fail rate. Um, I, I understand some of the mechanisms that have allowed that to happen, but that's that's not the right way to go forward. No. You have to make sure that kids have the skills that they need in order to be successful in life. Exactly right. When I, um, and I'll finish up on this uh, for the education piece here, and I know you gotta go, but when I was in Stanton growing up, we had two junior high schools before middle schools. And I went to both because one of them offered a class that the other didn't. And I would be shuttled over just for that class and shuttled back. It was for Latin in eighth grade. And after I graduated and grew up, went to college, and all that kind of stuff, I ran into and worked with uh, one of the principals. Uh, we were on the Board of, board of Zoning Appeals together uh, in Stanton. And I said, what was it like every day? Because there was a great rivalry between the two schools, Shelburne and John Lewis. Um, and I ended up moving to the, to the other one in the ninth grade year, went across town. I said, what was it like every day when you had two junior high schools in the same town? And he goes, we worked every day to beat the other school in everything. That you can't put a budget on. Right. That's a cultural shift that I think has to occur. And you talked about you, you didn't really follow sports. Good for you. Because what happens in sports, we rank every school and they compete against each other in everything but academics, which is what they're instituted to do. Yep. Why don't I, we I feel it? very strongly about that. So I'm right. not gonna go down that rabbit trail. But yeah, I mean, schools exist to do what? Educate you. I get that there's athletics and that there's extracurriculars and there's all those great things and they compete and you know they're ranked. But what the bottom line agenda for the school is is to make sure that kids can read, that they can do math, and that they're educated citizens who are prepared to engage in civil society as pr productive human beings who can live fulfilling lives. In, in your district. Who has the best science program? Who has the best math program? Who has the best reading program? We don't know. In any yeah. part of the state, we don't know. But we'll be right. sure who has the best football team. Right. Who has the best basketball team, don't we? Right. Absolutely. And, you know, what's crazy is it's taboo to even ask those questions. Right. So who, okay, tell me, tell me which school has the best math outcomes. You right. know, tell me these other things. But no, no, you can't ask about the academic performance. And that's what they're there for. Crazy. It's crazy. That's why they exist. That's why they exist. Well, I, I feel legislation coming on. <laughs> <laughs> Delegate Bat, it's been a pleasure talking with you this morning on the VIP podcast brought to you by VCTA, the Broadband Association of Virginia and Virginia Free, which I am the executive director. Please subscribe, like, and share on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Delegate, have a great week. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me.